Hey everybody and welcome to episode number 34 of the A1 Auto Body Podcast with your host Nick Sands. Today I'm speaking with Roger Snyder who is a truck photographer extraordinaire, um, wicked cool dude. He's been a National Enquirer, he's traveled the world, um, and he was nice enough to come on my podcast and talk with me. I hope you guys enjoy the show and let's get to it. Hey everybody, welcome to the A1 Auto Body Podcast with your host Nick Sands. Today, I am talking to Roger Snyder. Roger is a uh, photographer, and it looks like a filmmaker, or a very, like, a short filmmaker. Is that is that right, Roger? That's correct, yes. Um, and he, I actually don't know where you're located are. Where are you located out of? I live on the West Coast. I live, I split my time in a couple different places on the West Coast of the United States. Oh, that's awesome. And you, how long have you been a photographer for? I've been shooting professionally for 20 years, and I've been shooting photographs for 30. Wow. Wait, how? so how old are you? I'm in my mid-40s. Oh, wow. I thought you were a lot younger. <laughs> I thought you were like my age. <laughs> oh, cool. How old are you? 32. Oh, well, yeah. I'm not not quite that young. <laughs> you're killing it. You're, you're holding on to it, though. <laughs> yeah, thanks, man. Um. And it seems like you mostly shoot trucks. Is that correct? Uh, that's one thing that I shoot. I'm actually I, I'm a commercial photographer. I work in Hollywood and beyond, so to speak. And I shoot trucks. I'm, trucks is more like a passion for me. It's something that's kind of taken me around the world. Um, so that's why I have two Instagram feeds. One of them is, as I described it, truck-centric. And then the other one is more like a personal you know, blog diary kind of thing. Right. I saw that you had two, and I, I did check them both out. Um, and you do take some really beautiful photos. Thank you. What? So you said that trucks are kind of a, a passion for you. When did you start kind of developing that passion for trucks or for shooting uh, trucks? Back in, in 2006, my passion for truck photography began in 2006. My passion for trucks began in the late 1970s when I stayed with my grandparents at their beautiful little farm in Virginia off Route 29. And uh, they would take me, because I requested it, of course, every night, to the local truck stop. And at the local truck stop in the late 70s, you can imagine what kind of trucks were in the parking lot. Um, and so that is what I fell in love with. I fell in love with the cab overs and the conventionals. It was mostly cab overs back then, though, man. It was like a lot of K100s. Um, Aerodynes were just kind of becoming a thing, really, in the early 80s. Uh, uh, Peterbilt, you know, 352s, and um, Max, you know, we're on the East Coast, so Max, Brockways, those were all there. So the answer to your question is I became passionate about trucks just because I loved them and they were so big, and that was the golden era of trucking. That was in the late 1970s. And then my truck photography actually began in 2006 after a director who was directing a documentary about long-haul truck drivers asked me to shoot the stills on his photo sh- on his film shoot. And after I was done with that job, where we hitched rides from Los Angeles up to Seattle, and we just drove with guys and you know listened to what they had to say, both men and women truckers actually. And uh, after that. I said, wow, I'm really not done with this. Like, this is a really fun adventure. Like, what what else can I do? And so I researched and I found a truck show, like custom trucks. And that was at a Las Vegas truck show in the summer of 2006. And so I called up Stars and Stripes, who were the, who threw the show, basically, and did the whole, you know, show and shine uh, uh, judging. And they said, you can come here. We're not going to pay you, but we'll give you a press pass to just see it for yourself. And so I walked in there, and I saw custom trucking. And I was really amazed with the artistry of the work, you know, obviously the size and scale of the truck. And I just said, I'll be doing this for, you know, the foreseeable future. And so that was 2006. So thus began my passion for truck photography that has basically led me now. That was almost 14 years ago. That's a really cool story. So you kind of, um, what was the name of the movie you were shooting on? It's just called Big Rig. The director 
who his name is Doug Prey, worked on that movie from like the early 2000s up until 2006. And this time, back in 2007, we all went to Boston because um, the film was debuting there at the film festival that was part of South by Southwest. Oh, cool. <laughs> that's, so that was a – it always amazes me how long, like, movies take to make. So that took seven years to make, is that – or six years to make? Yes. And the documentary is typically a labor of love, so <laughs> – he was probably taking advertising, commercial jobs, and maybe longer features. But the big thing for him was something he just wanted to do. Like, no one hired him to do it. So when you're spending your own money, you kind of you, you work on a project as you can if when the time and money allows for it. So a lot of times when you're doing a film, you have sponsorship. Like, someone will lend you a camera to deploy this thing on the market so you can talk about it. And so you kind of pull favors to make your own personal projects happen. That's why it took him so long to do it. A lot of starting and stopping. We actually, um, I just recently talked with my friend Ed, who was a, who is a, a movie director. Actually, he's out in, in L.A. right now. Um, and he was telling me, yeah, people got to do, it, it seems like it, almost like it's as much politics as it is to get your movie made as it is actually making the movie and, and kind of signing that funding and, and talking to people and, trying to get people to write checks for you just as much as it is getting on the road and shooting. Yeah, well, getting on the road shooting is the fun part. The everything else is actually what happens, you know. It's, um, <laughs> it's, it's all the stuff that happens behind the scenes that's the real work and the heavy lifting. Because at the end of the day, you're just selling an idea to someone. You're trying to get other people on board for their time, their money, whatever it is, so they can make your idea, whatever you, you've thought up, a reality. So, yeah, a lot of it is just trying to make it happen because that's what everyone, there's millions of other people trying to do the exact same thing you are. <laughs> right. Everybody's got an idea, especially in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you, when did you start uh, photography? So, you've been doing it for over 30 years. So, you were like around 10 when you started? Um, I was I was more in my late teens. I was in my late teens, <clears throat> right out of high school, didn't know what I wanted to do. A buddy of mine suggested we take a photo class in community college, and uh, I was I shot black and white film. I developed my own film and made made my own prints. And the entire process of it, I was just totally it was just magic to me. So I knew at that point, no matter what I did, that I would spend the rest of my life trying to figure out a way to get paid to do this because this this was the this wasn't a job. This was a career. This was something I could be really passionate about, and that could theoretically lead me to wherever I want to go. And that's kind of what trucks did, you know. It's like photography and filmmaking isn't really about the gear and the whiz bang nature of wow, look what you can do. The nature of filmmaking and photography should be getting you closer to things that you're naturally interested in. And so as a photographer or, or as an artist of any kind, you kind of go through periods and phases where you, you, know, you, you kind of draw on your past and your own life. And so you could do a story on you know, people cutting their hair. You could do a story on people's love of coffee. You could do a whole thing on trucks. At the end of the day, you're an artist, and you're just trying to choose subject matters that really interest you. And sometimes they come out of nothing. Sometimes there's something that's been in your mind your whole life. It's all really different. Um, that's really interesting to hear you kind of talk about that. So it's almost it almost sounds like um, photography is more of a of a means of getting you closer to a subject you love than it is like the end of what you want. It's your license. It's your license to go do something. You know what I mean? Like that photography and or filmmaking, really it's the same thing as being a director, right? It's your license to go do your thing. If you're going to shoot a portfolio or you're going to shoot a short film or small film or whatever it is, it, as, as a medium, it, it is what allows you to get into someone's life or into a subject matter and just kind of follow it. Like when I first started shooting trucks back in 06 and 07, I tried to figure out, what, what was going to be my angle on this? And I said, you know, I'll make a coffee table book of the custom trucks scene all around the world. 
and I'll call it cultural aids of the world. I thought it'd be really interesting to shoot custom trucks in Asia and in America and in Europe and kind of do this, you know, comparison of all these different cultures. But in that culture and in the trucking part of the culture, there's a small group of people that really like to deck out their ride. And I found that really interesting. I looked at those people, those drivers, those builders as artists. And so I wanted to make a book celebrating the art of truck building. Well, as a body man, I really appreciate that. <laughs> and I appreciate awesome. that. Uh, great. What was that? Yeah, I, I said awesome. Great. I mean, you're, you're building something. I mean, I, I look at these trucks as big sculptures, which is what they are. And when people restore them and when people fix them, I mean, that's a craft. I, I, I celebrate that. That's part of being an artist. I, I love that. And these things go down the road, and they're really fancy, and they're beautiful. And also, they haul things. They're functional. I actually don't care about Corvettes or fancy cars or motorcycles or any of that stuff. I love custom trucking because the trucks are beautiful, and they haul us what we need. You know what I mean? They're, it's not just something that sits in a garage, and I found that really interesting. I also found the lifestyle of a driver or someone out on the road all the time also interesting because I've spent my whole life living in cities all around the United States, and I always feel like my life has been a big road trip too. So I kind of felt that the trucking lifestyle and my lifestyle went well together, and that, like I said, I could just go to Asia and Europe, which I did all those things. So I went to Japan. I got a translator. We went all over the country, and I shot their really cool art trucks. They're called Decatoras. I came back. I published some on my website, and National Geographic called me out of the blue and said, oh, my gosh, these trucks are really cool. We want to do a double-page spread on this. Would you release the rights to one of your raw files to us? And I said yes, and they paid me the most I've ever gotten paid for a single image for editorial use ever. And without trying to go do it, I actually got published in National Geographic, which, as you know, most photographers start with that goal in mind, saying, I saw these images in National Geographic. My goal is to one day be a published National Geographic photographer. And I did it and accomplished it without actually even trying to do it, just by <laughs> following what I like. That's amazing. What a so, cool story. Yeah, so a lot of times when you have an idea, the universe, in, as I like to say, gives you signs and hints that you're on to something. And you, it, it rewards you. It rewards your work and it tells you that not only is your work good, but your ideas are, are in step with who you are as a person. And that was a good example, like I just told, told you about National Geographic, where I knew I was onto something. And so that was towards the beginning of me shooting trucks. And since then, so many other things have happened. I refer to them as intangibles, that just by being a truck photographer, I've met and been to places that are incredible, that will always be in my memory, and I've always been such really great trips and experiences just because I'm on this truck trip, so to speak. I um I can actually really relate to that a lot because I have found a very similar thing with this podcast. Um, you know, like like you said, it, it kind of gives you a license. Like it's it's a little bit weird to reach out to a stranger and say like, "Hey, do you want to just talk with me?" You know, it gives you a little not an authority, but it, it gives you a reason to reach out and say, "Hey, would you like to come on my podcast and talk with me?" You know what I mean? Um, and then through those kind of connections, you end up with this serendipity and you um, you either, you know, like I have incredible conversations. I get to meet people who um, I admire and look up to and, and I follow their work and um, I get to talk with them, people who I never thought I would I would get the opportunity to meet or speak with. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's really a wonderful thing, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. And it all stems out of, you know, I mean, I'm doing this out of my basement right now, <laughs> so it's not like, um, you know, it's not some super fancy thing. At the end of the day, it's really just me getting to, you know, engage with people who have a similar interest. Right. And otherwise, if you didn't have a podcast, you wouldn't really have a reason to be having these connections. Exactly. 
like even even uh we both know Ashley the Mala girl. Um she was on here and you did an amazing um it looked like you you followed her for how long did you follow her for? Uh that shoot I was up there for uh 3 days. I in, I like traveled and the first day I don't even think we made images. We just met and talked and just kind of drove around and we kind of came up with a plan for the next day. So it was probably 3 to 4 days. And uh so we we both kind of met her, and it, again, it was almost like a serendipity. Like, um, you know, I don't know how you guys met, but I just kind of reached out to out to her out of the blue. Actually, I think she reached out to me, which is very unusual. So she reached out to me, actually, and asked. Um, but it was just, you know, if I didn't have this, if I didn't have my Instagram, it, it never would have happened. And I think it just goes to show that if you put – you know, that stuff out into the universe, it really does come back to you. And it sounds a little hokey or a little cliche, but, um, you know, I can say from experience, it sounds like you can too, that, you know, if you keep moving and you keep doing stuff, eventually something's going to happen. Yes. The longer you stay in it, it might not happen today. It might not happen next month. It might not even happen next year. The longer you stay in doing whatever you're doing, if you can somehow afford to do it, both money and time-wise, the more likely it is one day something might happen, whatever that is. But the minute right. you stop doing it, you have no chance. I like that. It's just a numbers game. That's what that's, that's what they always uh, – I've had a couple terrible jobs, and one of them was as a salesman, <laughs> um, unfortunately, and they always said that, um, you know, it's just a numbers game. If the odds of you getting a sale are a million to one, then you only have to ask a million people. So get out there right. and get those. Get just keep asking people, and eventually someone's going to say yes, right? Yep. And you just gotta, you just gotta keep your, gotta keep the fork in the fire, because if it comes out and it's not hot anymore, you have no chance. You always have a chance if you're in the game. Absolutely. Um. So when did you realize that? You know, not only did you want to take photographs for a living, but when did you realize that you were actually good enough to take photographs for a living, and what was that realization like? I think I have that realization every day. And it's really hard to say. There was never one time or one thing that I was, that I thought, oh, now I've made it. Now I'm good enough. I just never doubted that I wasn't good enough. And I always, said that given the right circumstance, I can prove myself to someone and keep them as a return client and then just keep moving forward and moving forward. Really, that's been the secret to my success is having opportunities, a few of them like, you know, you just need that one or two foot in the door kind of thing where people see what you're doing and people also see who you are as a person. Because there's so many people trying to do this. And a lot of it actually comes down to your personality. Because at the end of the day, everyone's got cameras, everyone's got lights, everyone's got a lot of things. But it's your personality as a director, not only for your subject matter, but for the people that hire you and pay you to do your thing, that people see the value in what you're doing. And then as a business person, you have to figure out who those people are that are going to keep you in business and you basically just need to grow that group of people. There's also a lot of people that like what you do but just can't afford you as well. It's, 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 it's a lot of people, I think, are really bad business people, and they don't succeed in photography. A lot of people are really good photographers, and they just don't get a break. There's so many things that have to happen for this to work out. And, again, it all does get back to you just have to keep at it. Even when you think you don't stand a chance, even if you had a bunch of, missed jobs or missed opportunities or made mistakes, you've just got to keep going. So there is no one time that I can look back on and say, oh, that's when I realized I was good enough. I just never doubted myself that I was, I always knew I was good enough. Where do you think that came from, that um, confidence that you were good enough always? Because there's nothing else as a career that I actually – thought that I would want to do. And I was always convinced through hard work and determination that the one way to make it work is to just keep at it and to never be satisfied. That's why I've lived 
you know, in Miami. I've lived in San Francisco. I've lived in New York. I've lived in Los Angeles. So those aren't places for, you know, half shots. Those are places where people go and you've got to make it. You know what I mean? Like you, you put yourself in a situation where you have to make it. Like there is no not going to make it. And you have <laughs> failures and you have a lot of times where you have some doubt. You're like, gosh, like what, what am I doing wrong? So how can I be, do something different? But eventually you're going to find a situation that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be just what you need and then you really excel and then people see that. So you, you just have to keep trying. You have to always operate outside of your comfort zone. If you're getting too comfortable, you need to shake it up. What was the – so you've been all around the world. What What are the biggest differences, But what are the, and also what are the biggest similarities you found um, in the trucking kind of cultures around the world? They're never satisfied with what they have. They're always looking at other people's trucks. They're always looking at their truck. And when they're not trucking, and I always found this incredible, and this is around the world, when they're not trucking, and as you know, people are trucking 10, you know, plus hours a day. I mean, I know the whole e-log thing, it's got to be 10 hours, but you and I both know, like, <laughs> people are driving. People are driving a lot. So I found around the world that these people, because it's such a small, small, small percentage of truckers that, have enough money and time to do this to their trucks is that they're literally never satisfied. So, you know, the dashboard isn't good enough, so they'll, they'll, you know, they'll customize it in a certain way, and then they'll, you know, the thing that they feel like they invented that was cool, the minute they see someone else doing it, it's not cool anymore. Do you know what I mean? So it's this sort of like self-perpetuated, I consider it an art movement, that is really interesting to watch and I noticed that that was a common thread in cultures around the world is that you have this never satisfied sort of attitude with the, with the owner operators. That's interesting. I wonder if that's what, um, if that same kind of attitude is what makes them successful business owners. Probably. I mean, again, I think I just mentioned not like operating out of your comfort zone. If you're comfortable, that means that you're saying that you're satisfied. But when you always have an edge, when you always feel like, you know, it could be more, you know, you could, you could feel like I could make more money, I could travel more, I could, you know, so that could apply to anything in your life. But specifically when you're looking at this physical thing, which is a truck, and there's guys that want their truck to be like no one's ever seen, this is their idea of cool, it always comes from not being satisfied and, be, and not, being, not being comfortable. Being, saying to yourself, this could be better, this could be better. And also taking risks. Maybe you try to do something that no one's ever seen before that might be tacky. Maybe it's tacky to you, but you don't know. You have to try it. And I think that's what's really cool. I, you know, and a lot of, you know, I can stand in an American truck show and show them a book of foreign cultures, and a lot of them are like, they look at the Asian trucks, they're like, I don't get it, they're crazy, they look like robots, and then some of them are just like, but it's really cool, they really appreciate the art. Maybe it's not their cup of tea, but they, I think they appreciate the incredible imagination and thoughtfulness. They wouldn't think to themselves, oh, I'd be competing against this guy, and how would you judge these two trucks, they're so different. It would never happen, because these two trucks are not at the same show together. But I think it's a end of the day, most guys who are working on custom trucks can look at other trucks in foreign countries, maybe once they get past, you know, the, the, the sticker shock of looking at a truck that's really kind of crazy looking or overly garish or too expensive or whatever the deal is, they can at least appreciate that someone put a lot of their time and energy into it. I'm not sure if I've ever seen the Japanese trucks you were talking about. Um, yeah, just, well, just Google it. Google Japanese art trucks, and they're called Dekatora, D-E-K-O-T-O-R-A. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I'm going to try and describe. So, I just found this one. It's got, like, I don't even know. I literally Lots lots of stainless steel. The front bumpers look like look like 
you know, um, they, they look like dance platforms, and they really do look like something from Battlestar Galactica or the Transformers. Or they, they, look, they look sci-fi, I think. Yeah, they, they look like they have, like, uh, pl- some of them have, like, platforms on the top that I'm assuming are also kind of like stages of some kind. Um, yeah, they're, they're platforms with recessed lighting. So what you can't tell without actually looking at a video or standing next to one in real life is that they're blasting Chinese, Chinese, they're blasting Japanese pop music while all the lights are synchronized and like blinking to the music. Wow. Yeah. You should just go look at some videos of it. I mean, you see them lit up and that's crazy enough. But if you see videos and you can listen to what the music sounds like and you can see what the lights are doing when they're synchronized, so that the light switch board inside of these trucks is so sophisticated and so complicated that beyond just building them, that the electrical part is so it's so it's so uniquely Japanese, it's so like specific about the way in which it's wired and the timing of how the lights go. It's really incredible. I've, I've seen these trucks taken apart before, and they're crazy. These trucks typically don't pass DOT regulations in Japan, so I've been told by a lot of the drivers that they actually take the whole thing apart and send it through the DOT inspection, and then they put the whole thing back together. <laughs> it's also worth pointing out, they, um, like many of them have like huge murals on the sides of the boxes. Yeah. Um, they're generally, it looks like they... Most of, so everything is generally very, very shiny. It's a lot of chrome, lots of stainless steel. But then on top of that, there's also a lot of paintings. Um, or at least they look like paintings. They could be they could be vinyl, but they look like paintings. Um, yeah, no, these are actually, these are beautiful. Yeah, so the, the, the drivers I talked to said, that when the whole movement started, and the movement started back in like the, the 60s and 70s, <laughs> because here's what happened. After World War II, we had a bunch of Navy, I mean, you know, Navy surplus equipment over there. And I think what happened was is that some of the Japanese guys started to take some of our, like, missiles and, you know, all obviously all, you know, um, they were they were they were all diffused, but they started to use some of our equipment and actually put it on their trucks just to kind of drive around, almost as like ornaments. And then they also were heavily influenced by ships and boats, and so they that's started the, to have this idea to make their trucks look like boats. That's what the fronts of them, or at least some of the ones I'm seeing, that's what they remind me of is like ships with cannons on them. Right, and then that's they just kept going. And then they were like, okay, but like, you know, then they started to make their own materials and then everything became customized. And so I think the ship influence is obvious in these Japanese trucks. And actually a lot of the trucks in Central Asia and Afghanistan and in Pakistan also had this sort of like Noah's Ark sort of look to them. Uh, the American soldiers over there call, refer to these trucks as jingle trucks. And that's because they set up these, like, little bells and stuff on them. So when they're traveling at night in, like, a Bedouin sort of convoy, they scare away all of the uh, animals from the road so they don't run them over. And so you can hear the jingling of the bells coming from miles away. <laughs> that's awesome. They actually, so, they kind of remind me of, like, a, like almost like a robot version of, like, the uh, Indian, the Indian buses, the decorated you know the ones that we're right. talking about? This? Yeah, they, I do. But those have, like, a much more natural kind of, like, they usually have, like, a lot of flowers and tassels and stuff. Um, and the Japanese. Right. But they also, they like to extend out the front bumper. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I can totally see how they have, like, a lot of similarities. But, like you said, it, it looks like the Japanese ones are very, like, much more, like, futuristic. Um, like, like battleships, and the the Indian ones are much more like kind of a natural, natural aesthetic. But they're all right. Yeah, no, these are wicked cool. What are European? What would you call a European truck art? <laughs> now that I'm googling. 
Um, Europe, I, all you have to, it's just standing. It's, it's, you know, so in Europe, you know, with length limit laws and all the regulations with each, all the countries in the EU, the amount of things you can do to your truck are very limited. So the best truck you can buy over there, their version of the Peterbilt, basically, is a Scania. Yep. And what they're really into over there is murals, and to some, you know, much lesser extent, some of the mirrors and things they put on it, but that's about as far as they can build. They can't use any long nose. You know, there are some American-made trucks over there, but you'd be losing money to be using that to be trucking stuff around. So most of those are like personal vehicles. But the average fancy truck over there is a Scania or a Volvo or a uh, Inveco. That's a that's an Italian-made truck. So that's really the scene over there. It's a lot of murals. It's a lot of very smooth-looking cab-over looks. And like I said, Scania reigns king as far as the the, the the kind of truck that you would be you would be customizing. That's one of my that's one of my life goals is to paint a Scania. Well, there's there's a lot of airbrush artists over there that make, <laughs> I think do really well, considering the amount of trucks over there that are airbrushed up. I just I'm actually, now that we've been talking, I just googled one real quick, and they actually um. They like it looks like they like to use like you were saying airbrush, but it it looks like they like to use the airbrush almost to like um so like do like tricky lighting things like this one looks like um they're kind of doing like a I don't know how to describe it it's like it's it's like almost like a chromed look in the front like they're using the airbrush to make like a chromed look instead of actually having chrome I don't know if that's like a popular thing. Anyway, that's really cool. I'm really glad that uh, you shared that with me. I'd love to see the pictures you took over there. Yeah, um, there's like a Time Magazine story that I ran back in like 2008 that has some of that. So I'll, I'll maybe send you a link a little bit later. Actually, if you dig further down to my Instagram feed, obviously there's like 2,500 pictures in there. You <laughs> might see some. So just 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 go go back in time in my feed. For- for sure, man. I I'm not gonna lie. I was a little intimidated by that post count. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's quite a few. I've had I've seen a lot of truck pictures over the years. Um, how does it, how does kind of your like how do you come about these trucks? Like, do people contact you? Do you contact people about taking pictures of their truck? Um, how does like how do you end up taking pictures of a specific truck? Uh, re- rephrase the question. Rephrase the question. How do I take, like what? Is, what take, are your when you set up like a shoot? How does that happen? Like, do you reach out to the person who owns the truck? Do you or do they generally reach out to you? Yeah, both ways. Typically, I I will just kind of pay attention to what trucks are out there, and I'll reach out to them. But after a while, I mean, in the beginning, it was all of me doing that because no one really knew or cared who I was. And then after a while, you do it enough, and people are like, oh, I want to, like, kind of be part of what you're doing. And then they, I've been people to start sending me photos of their trucks or photos of other people's trucks or something like that. So it, it, it does go both ways. But I kind of pay attention to what I like. And if I really like something, then I'll reach out to the owner. Do you, are there a lot of people doing what you're doing right now with trucks? Um, to my knowledge, there's a small handful of people. So I, I don't I – don't, think it's a lot of people. I think there's a small handful of people. That's cool. Um, do you remember what the first truck that you took photos of was? Hmm. Well, it would be on that movie job with Doug Prey. And I don't specifically, it was probably at a truck wash or something in Castaic in in Southern California on our way up. But what was the first actual shoot that I did where I set it up and, like, I really cared about what I was doing was my own thing was um, I took a photo, I took some shots of this guy, Bobby Blandino's really cool day cab Peterbilt 379s, and that was back in 2008, I believe. I did a photo shoot of him. I think he was out in Santana or something like that in Southern California. That was one of the first shoots I ever did, I think. 
That's awesome. And now I've seen that you, it looked like you worked with like the Peterbilt company. You worked with different, um, different trucking companies. Is that correct? Um, I've, I've, I basically shot a calendar for six years called Chrome and Elegant. So that's what a, a lot of the images you may see look like. Um, it was never in conjunction with Peterbilt. It just happened to feature Peterbilt trucks. Gotcha. That's my bad. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what that was. And are you still putting out the calendar? No, calendar's done. Last year was the last year of the calendar. Now I'm on to other things. I really now focus my energy on doing video. I focus my energy now on doing small, quick little narratives on specific truckers that I find interesting, and that's why that's how I found Kamala Girl. She actually reached out to me, actually, uh, or last year, actually, asking if what it would take for her to get on the calendar. And I was like, oh, well, I'm not doing that anymore, but, you know, <laughs> w- what maybe we can just go do a shoot or something. And so I just kind of stayed in touch with her. And in the beginning of this year, I flew up there, and we, had, we just hung out for a couple of days, and all the videos and stills is kind of what you've seen. So are you only recently transitioning into video, or you have have you always done video in conjunction with the still photographs? It's kind of a new thing for me. I've only really picked up video for both my personal and my commercial work over the last probably like three years. And as far as personal work goes, really it's only been over like the last year that I've been seriously doing video. But now that I'm doing it, I'm doing a lot more of it. And by video, I mean short, small, to-the-point narratives anywhere from 10 to 15 seconds, that will ultimately be added up to be a longer, you know, maybe at most five-minute-long, you know, short movie. But my main focus is to try to tell a story as quickly as possible with with moving images and really and some cool music. Is that something, is that direction something you thought of, or is it just something you kind of felt that kind of happened to you? You know what I mean? Like, did you go into it thinking, I want to make these short these short narratives, or did you start making videos you liked and you noticed that they were all kind of short narratives? I specifically started out trying to make short narratives because I know people don't have long attention spans, and I actually found it more of a challenge to just get your point across really fast. Also, I think the transition from being a still photographer to video, it makes more sense to start with shorter videos that are more to the point than it does with some, like, long-form, you know, multiple interview sort of dragged-out thing. You know what I mean? Like, and also, it's a good way for me to kind of test out because I'm trying to find my own style, both technically and, and narratively. I'm, so I'm just trying to experiment a little bit. So instead of, you know, spending two years making some big project and then putting it out there, my feeling is, start to work on long-term projects, but in the meantime, start to share small little tidbits to kind of get feedback to kind of see how, how it's resonating with people. It's a good way to stay in touch with your audience. Well, in, in my opinion, it looks, seems like you're doing really good. <laughs> the videos that I've, I watched of Ashley um, were great, and, you know, the pictures you took were great. I thought uh, I actually really enjoyed that kind of collaboration you guys did together. Thanks. I made a point to not shoot practically any digital photography of her. All of the images you you see are all shot on film. I brought my 35 millimeter and my media format film cameras with me, and all of the stills and the setups that I did with her, I thought would be really cool to shoot in an analog because I really liked the look of natural film. So my goal was to not shoot digital photography, but to actually shoot digital videography and then shoot stills all using film, which is what I learned on and what I'm now coming back to. So I'm coming back to shooting film after learning on it 30 years ago, and I'm actually now introducing small videos as like my, as my two prongs getting out of my comfort zone approach. That's really cool. Did you, so you had actually talked about this before too, but when you, what, what, when, when did you notice that you were kind of in your comfort zone and you decided to shake it up? Like, what would that feel like? 
that make sense? Yeah, yeah it, it totally makes sense. When I was trying to figure out what my signature look would be shooting trucks, shooting rigs, and I thought in my mind what would be best is if I tried to come up with something as real and as believable as possible because so many images have been so photoshopped and I think that there's a, a lack of trust in truth to images that I think has been lost that I personally would like to bring back. So my solution to that was instead of fussing over this one image like I had been doing for years, <laughs> why not just shoot film and let it be what it is and then also shoot moving picture stories that are honest, again, just like the film photography is. But again, what the subject is speaking, literally, like watch them move, watch them do their thing. And also, in a short video, you can get your point across and you can show so much, like, for instance, Ashley, that you couldn't in just one image. Sometimes it's fun to linger on an image and look at it and appreciate it. And sometimes it's cool to kind of like, almost like see behind the scenes or see what someone really does or, you can really get to know or get to understand someone a little bit better if you're watching them literally in action. And so that was me getting out of my comfort zone. Instead of fussing over this one image and making it perfect, like I felt like I had been doing for years, I took a complete, you know, I, I diverged from that, and I took these two different avenues at the same time as something completely different than single laning it for this one super important image. I like what you said about um, you're able to learn more about people by seeing them in action um, because that's actually, and I don't mean to keep bringing it back to this, but it's just, it's funny, the things that you're saying I can relate to so much because of this podcast. Um, you know, one of the things that I made a point of doing early on was I don't do any editing. Um so all of the ums and the pauses and all of the, you know, heavy breathing or whatever, I leave all that in because I think that it, it gives you a truer picture of, of who people are. And um, and it, I think it shows that not everybody's perfect, but everybody has something to say that's worth listening to. Right. I agree, right? So So that when you listen to someone, you don't think it's all been polished up and cleaned up you really get to know that that's how this person would operate in, you know, in a conversation if you met them. Exactly. And also yep. it's a lot of work to cut out all of the ums because I um a lot. <laughs> I, I, I do too. I'm not necessarily a really great public speaker, so I'm, I'm guilty of the thing. You're, you're killing me right now, so don't worry about it. <laughs> um, so what are you, what's your next big thing? What are you planning next? working on a couple different things, but I'm kind of trying to keep those cards close to my chest at the moment. There's Fair a couple enough. great things I'm looking forward to making announcements on in the future. However, this new direction of getting with drivers, doing these narratives, this is something with Ashley I, I, I really loved, and it went so well, but I really want to continue it, not only with her, meeting with her like at a different season where she's vlogging somewhere else or whatever, but to actually follow maybe even some more female truck drivers. I think that their experience is uniquely different from being a man driving. And for a long time, I photographed, you know, a calendar that involved really beautiful fashion models and trucks. I was kind of an ode to the old advertising. But to me, I'm like, well, it's kind of an angle that I find interesting is instead of putting a beautiful woman in front of a truck, why not just follow a woman trucker in her experience of driving, you know? So I think as a, as a narrative and as a story, that's something I think that was a, that was a logical pivot for me, I think in my, in my evolution of concept. Ashley's such a cool, such a cool girl too. And she has such a cool story. Like her whole family has an awesome story. Like, I, um, anyone who, you know, wants to hear it can go back and listen to the podcast, but she just, like, her father was an immigrant. Um, you know, she didn't want to truck for, like, a long time. She had told 
Misty told her dad that she would never be a truck driver, and now here she is, you know, and she couldn't be happier. Um, this, I, I, she has a very cool and interesting story, and so does her family, and I really, um, you know, I just think that she's just an awesome person overall. Right. That's a, that, I think the fair assessment. I was very impressed when I met her in person. She seemed very worldly. She was very well-spoken. I found her to be very smart, very motivated, very young, super cool. And it was, I have nothing but singing her praises. It was a really great experience to see her. So I'm glad you've had a chance to talk to her as well. And I, I totally feel the same way about her. Are you, so do you have other, other, are you talking with other truckers now about going out and doing that? Um, or is it something that you are just kind of seeing where, where it takes itself? I am, I am on and off talking to truckers and I'm just trying to figure out where they are, trucking women that is, and seeing if it might match up with my own work schedule shooting advertising photography and keeping that in mind to figure out when, when my time could be. So I'm, I am currently in the process of reaching out to new people. What's it like having to balance the business side of things, like you just said, talking about shooting advertising and, um, and the artistic side of things for you? It's just kind of all a stream of consciousness for me, to be honest with you. It's so much part of it's all, it's so all connected. And as an artist, a photographer, and as a working person, if you can if you can understand how they all feed each other, then you don't have to compartmentalize. Now I'm a business person. Now I'm an artist. Like if it's all just kind of flowing through you, that's something over time that you actually. I think realize anytime you do something in life, you have to do enough of it to then reflect and look at it as a body of work, whatever it is, being, you know, being a really good person in an office or someone who builds a truck or, you know, someone who knows how to write code. Like you have to do enough of one thing to look at it and assess what you're doing and then keep going. So again, the longer you do something, the better you're going to be at it, but you kind of have to keep stopping, reflecting, and then kind of strategizing and kind of tweaking your game a little bit. So for me, the business side of things and the artist side of things, they all they all just kind of mesh because they help each other move forward. That's interesting because I know I know a lot of artists who are amazing artists but can't seem to nail down the business side of things, um, and so they are kind of stuck in this situation where you know, it almost seems like they need to stop practicing art and start practicing, um, you know, selling their art instead of just, it seems like they just expect the business side to kind of fall into place if they get good enough at what they do. It's just really a, a tricky thing to do because being an artist, it's, you know, selling your artwork. I mean, sometimes you would think, oh, it'd be so easy, but you believe in it. But in a way, you kind of almost need like a third party to help you with that because selling your artwork, it's so personal and so emotional to you. It's kind of like why people hire real estate brokers to sell their house for them because the buyer doesn't want the weird, you know, personal vibe of someone who owns the house. They want the more matter of fact intermediary person who does this for a living that kind of like blends the two. So a lot of times people fail, I think at business because they try to do it all themselves and they actually don't know how to delegate and have people help them and basically be a patron and an advocate for them to help them to the next level. It's a pretty common story about artists failing as business people, not necessarily because they're bad business people, but because it's a really difficult thing sometimes to sell your own artwork to the end buyer. You really need to, you really need to know how to delegate, and you need to ideally form a team of some kind. Oh, that's that's um that's a really good point. I think. Do you have do you have like a uh, agent or like a partner that that does handles that kind of stuff for you, or do you handle it all yourself? No, I hire people, freelance. You know, 
from job to job. Sometimes if I have a job and I need a producer, I'll hire a producer. They'll help me give the job. They'll help me talk to the client. Sometimes for my images, I'll hire an outside editor who's a really, really good photo editor that can help you pick out your best images, talk to you about which images tell the best story. They'll help you sequence the images. They'll help you come up with copy to sell you as an artist. You know, you just you just got to get the right people. You have to get in with people who you think get you. That has to be a right relationship. But to do it all yourself, it's kind of like, you know, could you do graphic design and come up with your own logo? Sure. Is it going to look really good? Probably not. <laughs> would, you hire, would, you, would you hire someone who does graphic design for a living? Probably. Would you hire someone who's really good at it? Ideally. See what I mean? So it's just, you can't do it all by yourself. You just, you have to know how to curate talent, though. You have to know who's good and why they're good. And also, if they fit your your brand. So you, you have to know some things. And the only way to know things is to have done them and to have failed and then to understand why they didn't work. And it typically begins with, I tried to do everything myself. I'm not good at everything. I need to hire other people who are good at certain things. I hadn't thought about it until you said that, but I do think that um, from an outside perspective, again, as, as a non-artist, it, it seems like artists, like in my head, I think of the of an artist's business as literally just one person. I never would have even thought that, like, you know, an artist would, would hire other people. Um, and I think that that's kind of, like, maybe even the general kind of understanding. Like, I had assumed, because I don't, I'm not in the photography world. I have no idea what's going on there. Um, I had assumed, like, you take the pictures. Like, I just assumed you did every aspect of it. It literally never would have crossed my mind, even though it makes way more sense um, after you explain it that like a photographer would hire someone to write their copy. Like they take photography, they take photographs. They're not a copywriter, you know? So like, it only makes sense that they would hire someone to write their copy for them. Um, but it's just not something you think of, you know what I mean? Right. Well, like I said, it's, it's all trial and error. If you try some stuff and it's not working, you have to say to yourself, why isn't it working? And why isn't it working? And if you can answer that question, and you have the money, and you can convince someone to help you, that's when you start to reach out and make a difference. Um, that is all of the questions I have for you tonight. Oh, actually, I, I just have one more. Sorry. Um, if you could – actually, I'm sorry. I have two more. I'm an idiot. <laughs> if you could um, give any advice to people who are just getting started in the field um, of photography, what would that – advice piece. Hang in there. You know, it's taken me 30 years to be an overnight success. <laughs> I don't think most people have the patience, especially in today's society. One of the major things that's lacking from anything is patience. And that at the end of the day is the difference between whether or not you're going to be in the game next month, next year, in the next 10 years. And adaptability. Because if you're trying to get into photography right now, I think it's got to be one of the most competitive jobs there is. I think everyone thinks they're a photographer, and everyone wants to get paid for it. And judging by social media, it looks like everyone is getting paid for it. <laughs> but most people aren't. There's a, most people are pretending. They're not getting paid for it. It's like a hobby. They're an enthusiast. They, you know, they have a digital camera or they've got a cute girlfriend or whatever it is that keeps them shooting. And I think people can become very disillusioned by this. They look at it and like, that person's got a ton of followers or that person's got photography that I really like. And, you know, those are all certain aspects to it. But at the end of the day, the people who stick around are the people who are patient and are really committed to their craft and are in it for the long run. You know, there's a lot of sacrifices you have to make to get through this. And you need a lot of luck, too. So if you 
don't realize that and you think it's easy, then you're going to be very disappointed. And now, my, now for my final question. Um, if you could shoot, you could go to any, any time, anywhere, and you could shoot any truck, um, what truck, you know, would you like to, do you feel like you would really like to, or like, hold on. If you could go to any time um, and shoot any truck, what truck would you choose? So go to any time, like, in the history of trucking? In the history of trucking. Hmm. I think it'd be really cool to shoot some of the original Peterbilt 352s coming off the line and going out over the road back in the 70s. That would be very cool. <laughs> I appreciate you thinking so hard about that. Because uh, there, there's a lot to look at. You know, there's like, oh, I would go on a movie set and, and you know, and, and and shoot the Kenworth from Smoking the Bandit, or maybe I'd really like to shoot, you know, the rubber duck, you know, Mack truck on, you know, out in Alamogordo, New Mexico. It could be so cool. Like there, or, or even Duel. Like to be on any of those movies where a truck with a character would have been a really, that would have been such a rad gig. I've thought about that a lot. I've thought about that and been like, that would be cool. To be on any TV or movie production where one of the main characters was driving a truck or the truck was a character. So it took me a while to think about that, but I just thought aesthetically from the truck point of view, the 352 is a pretty cool truck. I really do like 362s a lot too. I really like A models. Um, I really like, you know, any long nose piece is pretty cool. Um, so it's really, for me, again, it's the golden era of trucking. I love Aerodyne. I mean, really, Kenworth and Peterbilt, I think, are the two coolest trucks ever made. But, Absolutely. You know, <laughs> a, a, you know a, a, a Mac on any certain day, I think, can be a really cool truck. I mean, there's Freightliners, too. You know, Freightliners, I remember seeing them all over the place in the 70s and 80s, and I thought the design of them. Was, was pretty cool. I mean, they weren't built to last by any means, but they, they have some really cool designs. So I'm not, I'm not a pack car snob. I mean, I think you know, even you know what it was when I was working with Ashley. I saw some really cool Western stars from like the '70s. Dudes still driving these big Western stars from like you know 40, 50 years ago, hauling logs. I was like, that's really cool. Western so stars, I, even recently, have have they looked beautiful in their interiors are wicked nice like just coming off the lot they they almost have like a custom feel to them. the western stars i think are one of the, like the nicest trucks on the road i don't think they get enough credit yeah i have to agree i think they've done some really great things with this design i'm not a big fan of the new design that he coming out of kenworth but i do like what i'm seeing with western stars so again i'm not a brand snob at all i just kind of i just i look at a truck holistically and i know what i like when i see it that's cool. Yeah, no, I uh, the Kenworths, like you said, they they look a little, I don't know, they're like their hood is weirdly slanted and it looks kind of short or something. I don't know. the The newest Kenworths do look really weird. You know what I actually like from a design standpoint recently is the International. They've come out with like the HVs and the HX and the um, they have they look cool. I think they're much better than like the forty nine hundreds and the the Terrastars and stuff did. Yeah. Totally. So, which were just kind of like boring, generic, like, yeah, trucks. <laughs> they just look like fleet trucks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on today, Roger. Where can everybody find you? Oh yeah, um, you check that at Roger Snyder Rigs on Instagram. Um, and if someone wanted to get a hold of you about a shoot, is that where they would reach out to you? Totally. Yeah, send me a DM. All right, cool. Um, he does answer his DMs. That's how I. That's how I got him on here. <laughs> yeah, and it worked. I, I I do check those periodically. Um, thank you so much for coming on today, Roger. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, man. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye.
Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, if you could do me a favor and go give me a, a, a review on Apple iTunes, I'd really appreciate it. The more reviews I get, the more podcast listeners I can reach um, and the bigger my show can grow. Or if you wanted, you could do me a favor and send this show to one person. I would really appreciate that too. I hope you guys have a wonderful day and I'll talk to you soon.